Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. My guest today is Dr. Susan Blum, a medical doctor and a true pioneer in functional medicine and a nationally recognized speaker, author, and teacher. As founder and director of Blum Center for Health, and through her patient care, writing, research, and mentoring, she's a passionate advocate for those with chronic illness. In 2017, she launched a new digital platform, BlumHealthMD.com, featuring Heal My Gut, her comprehensive online medical program that includes individual and group coaching. Always gifted at bringing healing to her patients in person and through her books, through BlumHealthMD.com, she created an effective online program that now provides support and ensures success to even more people. Susan is Assistant Clinical Professor in Preventative Medicine at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Senior Faculty with the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, and she's certified in functional medicine. She's the author of the Immune System Recovery Program and Medical Advisor for the Dr. Oz Show and the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. Dr. Blum's next book, Healing Arthritis, which we're going to talk about today, is due to be released in November 2017. And, you know, on a personal note, I met Susan when we were teaching together at Food as Medicine, the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, Food as Medicine Conference. And immediately I was like, okay, this is my sister, MD. This woman has not only knowledge and credentials, but incredible amounts of experience and tremendous integrity. So she's someone I can really talk with about around navigating a lot of the challenges that doctors face now in maintaining integrity and having that more online and book author presence. So it's with great pleasure that I introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Susan Blum. Susan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here to really talk to you on your podcast and to get into one of our great conversations that you and I always have when we're together. I love it. So I'm holding a copy. I'm holding a pre, um, preprint copy of Healing Arthritis, and it's your three-step guide to conquering arthritis naturally. Treat rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, and more. Heal your gut to heal your joints and reduce inflammation without medication. So Tell me why a book on arthritis? I mean, you're like this young hip doc, and I think about, you know, young, like my age, young. We're in our 50s. And I think, when I was, you know, as a kid, I always thought of arthritis as like my great grandma's knuckles, you know? And right. yet we know that arthritis is actually affecting a lot more people than it ever did, and younger people. Tell us about who arthritis is affecting and why you think it's affecting so many people at such different ages now. Yeah. So first of all, um, first, let me just say that there's um, several different kinds of arthritis. So let's just sort of cast the net about what we're going to be talking about. So there's a whole category of arthritis called inflammatory arthritis. And these are sort of the inflammatory autoimmune arthritis conditions like 
rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and even things like, you know, arthritis from rheumatic conditions like lupus and Sjogren's, you know, people who also have arthritis and they have some sort of autoimmune disease. As a category, these conditions actually affect young people, you know, 40, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, which is the number one autoimmune disease, the most prevalent one, uh, you know, the prevalence starts increasing pretty dramatically after age 40. So this is not an old person's arthritis at all. And there's a whole grouping of arthritis arthritis conditions that are juvenile, that are considered juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and other juvenile arthritis conditions, which are increasing in prevalence as well. So we know that's all happening younger and younger. And then there's the second biggest category, which is osteoarthritis. And that's sort of one, that's the arthritis that people think of as this inevitable, you know, wear and tear kind of arthritis condition that the joints just get damaged as you get older. And it's inevitable that you're going to have pain and inflammation in your joints. And I'm here to tell you that actually that that's really not true, that there's, there's this, in, it is not inevitable. And I'm also here to tell you that osteoarthritis, which we thought of as only for older people, that's happening younger and younger as well. And one of the main reasons that we are seeing all these conditions in people so young is because of the epidemic of sort of autoimmune, of just autoimmune, yes, but the epidemic of system-wide inflammation and chronic disease, you know, that's the underlying driver for all inflammation in the body. And that what we're learning about arthritis is that the inflammation and the pain that you feel in your joints is actually from inflammation that's being triggered elsewhere. You know, so the inflammation system-wide lands in the joints and you end up with pain. And so I thought, you know, it's really, really important. Well, not just I thought, but I wrote a book, right? The reason I decided to write a book on arthritis is that I wrote this great book called The Immune System Recovery Plan in 2013, and it's all about all autoimmune and like the four-step treatment and how, where, where sort of inflammation comes from in the body. And I started seeing, of course, you know, as you know, because you wrote a great book, you know, people find you because they, you, they become aware of your work. And so I started seeing a lot of arthritis people over the past several years. And what I discovered, as well as the literature, you know, that's come out on this whole gut arthritis connection, which I think, which I definitely want to dig into a little bit in terms of the origins of inflammation in the body. We're learning so much more about the origins of inflammation in the past five years. The research has been incredible. And so the un, the knowledge that we now have, there's all this new information. And so I wanted to get the word out that arthritis matters. It's really an epidemic that nobody's talking about. It's the number one disability in the world. It's happening to younger and younger people. And a lot of that's because we're learning about this whole systemic connection, the connection between food and the environment, the connection between gut health and how that's triggering arthritis. And we know that we're in this epidemic of this whole gut, you know, revolution, right? That we're learning about what's going on, you know, it's sort of the center of the inflammation universe, you know, that we talk about in gut health and, and really looking at what's happened in the past 50 years and how the environment has come in to our bodies and, and had this dramatic effect in sort of impairing our inner ecosystem, you know, in a way that's causing this inflammation. And so there's just so much great information and there's so much we could do about it. You know, and I was doing this work every day in my practice and I said, you know what, I need to write a very specific book about this whole epidemic of arthritis and sort of the fact that you can treat all these different kinds of arthritis by treating the root cause of inflammation in the body. And if you do that, then no matter what kind of arthritis you have, you will feel better and you will have less pain. 
Susan, so that's I it. love that you brought up the, the gut connection. You know, to me, it's so fundamental. It makes me think of two different patients in my practice. One was she was a little 18-month-old girl, and she got a fever and a cold, you know, respiratory thing. And the mom, who was a nurse, actually called the pediatrician. And the pediatrician said, you know, just give her alternating ibuprofen and Tylenol around the clock. So she, you know, she'd do oh the Tylenol. And then, you know, six, eight hours later, she'd do the ibuprofen. And then it kept this very typical pediatric recommendation. Well, as happens sometimes with kids, the fever kept coming and going for like five days. So the mom did this for five days. At the end of the five days... The girl had, this little girl had gastritis. She had a pretty severe stomach inflammation for those of you who don't know what gastritis is. So then she got put on Prilosec. Now, this is an 18-month-old. She got put on Prilosec for six months. At the (gasps) end of the six months, her joints started swelling up and she ended up with a diagnosis of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. So by two, this kid was completely debilitated. So a gut origin, we did a lot of work over six months of healing her gut, and she had a complete recovery. Then another patient of mine, and these are just two of many examples to kind of, you know, illustrate what you're sharing, is a, yes. was a totally, you know, totally healthy woman in her 30s. Uh, she's a research scientist and went away on a research project um, that took her to Central America or, or Caribbean, I can't remember which, and she ended up getting gastroenteritis. So she had a pretty severe stomach digestive bug. Came back, took antibiotics for it. Three months later, this woman had no symptoms previously, had inflammatory bowel disease and developed autoimmune joint problems as a result. So just two, you know, people who were totally fine, had a gut insult, and then within months had a full-on autoimmune condition. Can you speak to those kind of situations and what you've seen? Yes. And actually, you know, I'm I'm sitting here thinking, you know, that first of all, they're lucky they found you, right? Because you know how to (laughs) sort of take that apart. No, really. Um, And that because and that poor girl, the poor little two year old that ended up on medication. I hear that story. I hear those stories all the time. And actually, I have had the experience of also working with some young teenagers who, who had been on medication for 10 years. Like that's, I call that sort of going down the rabbit hole, right? They end up down the rabbit hole. And, and sometimes some, yeah. I see them 10 years later, you know, and they've been living in the medical and model and just being big, treated. Yeah. And sometimes it's big, it's scary big medications med. like methotrexate, yes. methotrexate or monoclonal antibodies. That's a, this two-year-old, the mom yes. found me through finding, actually, she found one of Dr. Hyman's books and was when I worked at Mark's practice. And she actually cured herself of type 2 diabetes. And she said, you know what? If I can do this for myself with diet and yes. lifestyle changes, I can do this for my, you know, maybe I can do this for my daughter. And, right. um, but they were about to put this two-year-old on methotrexate, which is a really yeah, no. dangerous, you say, dangerous I know. Yeah. But you, but you saved her life because she really, and this is what I see all the time and what I do all the time as well, is people come in and, you know, and I, I want to just finish and say, like, it so, feels so good to know that you really did save her life because she could have ended up down that mm-hmm. rabbit hole, right, into conventional medicine and really stuck there. But coming back, though, to, you know, how to approach this, I think the most important thing for people to realize that are listening is 
you know, you did your detective work, right? I do my detective work. There's so much that we could figure out from hearing the story, from going all the way back under really detailed, like what ha- I go all the way back as you do too, to birth, you know, like where, where was your childhood? Did you have stomach aches? Like gut history. What happened right in the time before you got sick? You know, really a timeline, very detailed, looking at exposures, looking at infections, looking at gut health, looking at anything that might be affecting gut health, looking at trauma, looking at traumatic events and stress, looking at everything. And so by doing that, as a medical detective looking for root cause, right, I'm trying to figure out what triggered that arthritis because there's always an answer somewhere. Now, and that's especially when it comes to the autoimmune inflammatory kind. There's usually a trigger. Sometimes there's infections. I actually have some, a lot of stories also about people who traveled and went to a third world country or someplace where they got sick. Sometimes it's a gut bug. I've had incidences where it's another kind of virus that they don't even know what it was, but they know they had a febrile illness. They had something happen and they were never the same since they came back and ended up with some kind of arthritis as well. And so infectious diseases can trigger arthritis. And so it's really important to find somebody and work with somebody that can help you get to the root cause. And actually in my book, or just get my book, right? Because in the book, I really go through all the different kinds of arthritis and figuring out which kind you have, and then the places to go to figure out what might be triggering it and what to do about it. I do want to talk separately in terms of osteoarthritis. Osteoarthritis is less likely triggered by an infection, but what I but what the research is really interesting about osteoarthritis is that you know you can hold up two x-rays for two different people and um, they have they look the same but one person has pain and one doesn't and so we know there's all sorts of reasons like receptors and kind of um, that inside the joints there's inflammation that comes from elsewhere in the body that ends up in the joints that determines the level of pain and inflammation and in osteoarthritis there's this huge connection between visceral adipose tissue, which is that, you know, those those inflammatory fat cells in the body, which give off a lot of these inflammatory compounds that end up in the joints. And so there's this really big association with uh, what we call oxidative stress, just which is like too many free radicals, especially coming from like the visceral adipose tissue in the body and the fat, um, as well as other triggers for inflammation, which is where the gut health is as well as, you know, food, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, at some point. And so there's all these other reasons. So depending on what kind of arthritis you have, the triggers might be a little bit different. But the fact is, gut is important for all of them. In osteoarthritis, sort of the fat plays a big role. But And in autoimmune, there's a huge role for, like, other kinds of infectious triggers, right? But, but impaired gut health and this thing called leaky gut is important for all of them. Now, Susan, when you talk about visceral fat, let's explain for listeners that this is different than a little fat on your bum or a little bit of muffin tops. This is really what we're talking about is fat around the internal organs. And one of the ways that I check for it in my practice is, you know, sometimes we have lab work and we can see that somebody may have a little bit of fatty liver disease. But actually, I do an abdominal circumference measurement because that is indicative to some extent of this visceral fat. And if for women, if they measure it, and you can look online, just look how to do waist circumference measurement, because it's not right around the belly button. It's a little different. But over 30 for women can, can be suggestive that you actually have more of this visceral abdominal fat. Is that something you do in your practice also? Yes. So we do that as well. And our, we have our nutritionist here often will do the BIA, measure the body composition, you know, as well, but that's not uh, exactly visceral, but 
total body fat is important as well. But yes, visceral adipose tissue, the best way is measuring the waist circumference. And, and so the yeah, thing so is that's that, something listeners can do at yes. home. Well, that's true. And that's a very good point. So absolutely. Um, and you know, look, it's some people, it's very easy to see, right? It's the men with the belly hanging over the waist, the buckle. But I think it is really important to keep in mind, like you said, that some people, you might not even realize it. And it's, it's not the kind of fat that you can pinch that's above the surface. It's, it's actually fat that's really uh, wrapping all your inner organs, your, your, you know, your intestines and your liver and your, your spleen, like all those abdominal organs are just filled and, and with wrapped around fat. And the thing about that fat that makes it different is it's, it's inflamed fat is the best way to say it. It doesn't function. It's like an endocrine organ. It actually makes hormones. It sends out inflammatory molecules and it increases your risk for heart disease and other inflammatory conditions. And now it turns out osteoarthritis is being thought of as a metabolic disease that's associated with metabolic syndrome, diabetes. This visceral adipose tissue is, a, is also in that whole uh, category of health conditions. And so the point being... It's just, just, this is the take home point is that there's inflammation coming from a distant place that's ending up in your joints. And so you can do something about reducing your pain in your joints by reducing the inflammation in your body. And depending on the person and people listening and for you and me, you know, we, we look at the person in front of us and first you sort of figure out what kind of arthritis you have. And sometimes people come in with that diagnosis already because they had x-rays or you saw an orthopedist or you saw a rheumatologist, you have a diagnosis. And then the question is, okay, let's make sure we know what kind of arthritis you have. And then let's try to figure out where your inflammatory triggers are coming from. Now, visceral adipose tissue, like somebody who has too much body fat and has metabolic syndrome, th these things can overlap with rheumatoid arthritis also. You can have both rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis. They could coexist. So these are not absolute rules in terms of separate, always separate conditions for people. You know, sometimes both are at play. And it's just that we have this sort of, list that I, uh, that I go through in the book, but I also, when I'm, when I'm working with my patients, it's really getting to know them, understanding my, doing my detective work to figure out, you know, how's your gut? How's your, you know, what's your body composition? Do you have too much visceral adipose tissue? Where's your inflammation coming from? Measuring inflammation markers. And I go through that all in the book. I explain like what you can ask for and what you can, what you can measure and what you can follow. But finding and treating all those sources of inflammation, no matter what kind of arthritis you have, is really, really important. Usually the first place I start with everybody is food. Yeah, so I want to talk about food too, and I want to swing back around to the connection with leaky gut because that is really a yes. connection that ties together both the metabolic syndrome but also the autoimmune piece. But before we yes. do that, I want, to, I want to hit on something that you said so we don't lose that thought, which is asking your doctor for some of these tests. So there's the, like the MacArthur study on aging, which looked at the inflammatory markers, um, CRP, sed rate, things that I'm sure you talk about and that I talk about mm -hmm. in my book too, because they're so core for inflammation. What do you recommend for people who get your book? They're not in your practice. They live somewhere else. And their doctor is just saying, you know what? I'm not going to run that test for you because you don't, you don't need it. And where'd you learn about that on Dr. Google? You know how that rolls. What do you recommend for <laughs> listeners who, f who face that dilemma with their doctor? 
Well, one of the nice things about things like CRP and ESR, you know, which is the SED rate, those are conventional tests that any doctor, that all doctors do for arthritis. I mean, it's actually good medical practice. So if your doctor doesn't want to do an ESR and a CRP, you actually should probably go to a different doctor. And and I'm saying that with all due, this is not left-wing Google medicine. This is a conventional and actually a a, a rheumatologist, which is where a lot of people, if you have arthritis, you might even already be seeing a rheumatologist. Those are the tests that they routinely follow as well as anti- there might be antibody tests that they're following. So I think that you have you should stand in your own truth and your own right to um, ask for those tests and get them. And so I really... I, I agree. Um, and I do make the differentiation in the book with conventional tests that everybody should routinely get. Practicing good medicine. I mean, Aviva, how many times, you know, it's so frustrating sometimes that people think of what we're doing as Google medicine. I love that term that you used. When there are a lot of doctors, conventional docs that aren't practicing, you know, top of the standard medicine themselves, like to their own field, you know, and and, so evi- and really following the evidence, right? Yes. Absolutely. I see this with um, thyroid. I have pregnant women who come in and they had their TSH checked, but they didn't have their thyroid antibodies checked and their their OB or male is saying, I'm not going to do that. And I'm saying, but that is actually standard of care. That's the highest level of not alternative recommendation. That's conventional. Same with exactly what you're saying, following antibodies, checking the right test. Yes. So I'm glad to hear you say, with all due respect... With yeah. all due respect, and I listen, I work in Blum Center for Health, where I, I have a health center here in Westchester County in New York. And, um, you know, I've been working in my community for almost two decades. And I, I'm grateful. I have the respect of all my colleagues. Like, I, I freely, we, we share patients. I'm on the team with the community's rheumatologists and internists and everything. And because we respect each other. And, and I'm really comfortable saying that's not standard of care, you know. And, you, you know, and so I think... I think we do have to help our patients understand that, that we're actually, we're like, we're really just like a specialist who knows what we're talking about, right? And we're telling them this is standard of care. You need to go ask for this and it's conventional. So yeah, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty clear about that. And, um, and I really do believe that, and a CRP and an ESR, those aren't even expensive tests. Like even somebody in a managed care situation, those are cheap. Those aren't even the fancy tests, right? So there's absolutely no reason why. Um, and all the rheumato- rheumatoid arthritis papers and studies, those are those are really what they follow. So um, now I have other things that I like to follow too, which maybe not are not a standard of care. Um, and so you know you might have a little harder time getting those, but that's where somebody like us, you know, you and I come in in terms of the functional medicine or integrative medicine kind of doctor that can order these tests and your insurance will pay for it because it's through a conventional lab. But, you know, you just have to get somebody else to write the prescription. And uh, one of the, as a category, one of the things I really, really like to follow for all my arthritis patients is something called oxidative stress markers. And there's really, really good studies looking at markers for oxidative stress that you can get through a routine lab. One of them is called, it's a funny name, it's called F2 isoprostane. It's done, you can get that through a conventional lab. And the and the studies are really good that really show that high levels of F2 isoprostane are reflective of high levels of oxidative stress in the body. And there are great studies on arthritis and oxidative stress and looking at like oxidative stress just means too many free radicals that are causing damage. 
and not enough antioxidants to sort of put the fire out, right? And so the embers are burning and they turn into a fire and then you end up with damage in the joints. And this is one of the ways you end up with arthritis is, is this sort of pre-radical damage. And so, of course, you always, you want to know how bad it is so that, you know, I like to use it as a way to follow my treatment because you really want to see the oxidative stress, the fires, you know, the little sparks be completely put out. And so we follow these markers. In functional medicine, there's some other great uh, easy markers to get urine lipid peroxides, um, 8-OH-DG. I mean, these studies have really been done looking that these, these things are at play in the joints themselves and that it's mirrored by these levels in the body. So this is one of the ways to know if you're getting ahead of the inflammation. And what's really important is that these are the markers you can follow that will help you know if you're truly in remission. Like in someone with an autoimmune arthritis like RA, can I go off my medication? I feel pretty good. Well, you want to make sure that all your antibodies are gone and all of your blood tests are normal. And then you know you at a, you really can go off your medication because your risk of relapse is very low. You know, if those markers are still high, then you have a higher risk for relapse. So in functional medicine, you know, we really look at that gray zone, right? What's under the iceberg? You know, and these kind of tests can often tell you what's going on under the iceberg to make sure that there's nothing hidden there that's brewing that could prevent you from having a full recovery. Does that make sense? Yes. And you know what I, I love is just kind of want to emphasize what one piece that you just said is that some people can go off their medications. And this might not be the case for every single person, but these are diseases and conditions that we have been told, not just as a general community of, of consumers, but you and I were told in medical training that these are permanent. We don't know why they happen. They're just random or bad genes or bad luck or bad habits. And the kind of medications that we're talking about, whether it's NSAIDs like ibuprofen, which definitely can damage the gut. We know ibuprofen has a heart attack right. risk for, for people who take it. But these are the kind of medications where when you're watching a TV commercial and it says, you know, the risk of, you know, uh, not producing enough white blood cells, the risk of reactivation of tuberculosis and the risk of death, we're talking about these are the kind of medications that people are on. So going off of these is not an insubstantial thing. So, you know, I, I really appreciate it's that a you huge thing. shared that, that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Often that's what people yeah. come in and say, I'm here because I want to get off my medication. And absolutely. I love get, helping people get off the medication. I'm always working. Prednisone is like, I feel like I'm tapering. I have like a, a whole lot of people in my practice right now that came in and we're busy getting them off their prednisone. You know, you have to, as you get better and you heal your leaky gut, which we're going to talk about now, you know, um, and we reduce your oxidative stress and your inflammation goes down, you will be able to get taper off your medication. But, you know, you really want to make sure all those fires are out and healed, you know, to ensure that as you go off your medication, you will not relapse. So let's talk about leaky gut. So leaky gut, as um, your listeners probably know, I'm sure you've talked about this like a lot because this is another reason that I wrote the book because the research on leaky gut what causes it, you know, and, and how to repair it. There's a lot of work being done on approaching arthritis by understanding, you know, a leaky gut, but by treating a leaky gut in order to heal the joints. And it's just really very, you know, I have to say as a practitioner, and I know you feel the same, we've been doing this a really long time and we've been repairing the gut because 
in functional medicine, you know, the gut was home base for the past two decades. You know, we've been talking about repairing the gut, repairing the gut. And now the world's catching up to us. Right, Aviva? It sure is. You know, it's funny because as an herbalist, I look back at some of the earliest traditions, even people like Hippocrates or Rhazes, you know, centuries ago, we're talking about food and gut, food and gut. These are the two things and they go interchangeably together. And they, and they do go interchangeably together because what is the the number one thing that influences the gut the most is the food you eat. And so I like to talk about healing the gut from the perspective of an initial therapy. This is really, really important. I think that it's very easy for all of us to get into this quick fix model in the world of medicine, even in alternative and integrative medicine. People are out there peddling like 21 day this. And, and I think that that's great. And I call that the therapeutic phase. You, you need jump starts are great. And healing the gut is the initial thing we really work hard at at the beginning. But at the end of the day, you need to finish what you started. You know, we need to, we help you get started. You'll feel better quickly, but we need to, re, to shift the ecosystem of the gut and the gut microbes, those hundred trillion bacteria that live there. And to ultimately you know, repair this ecosystem balance of the microbes in the gut and repair the lining so that there's no leaky gut just means there's an increased permeability in the gut lining so that the bacteria themselves, as well as foods you're eating, sort of slip through the lining and come into the body and trigger an inflammatory reaction. And at, so at the end of the day, we have to make sure the gut lining is repaired. And that takes a while. And that takes commitment to some permanent changes that have to be made, especially with food. And so there's this sort of, you know, maybe the, so there is this sort of beginning one month or two months of a therapeutic intensive kind of program that I think everybody does benefit from. But then we really have to learn how to be sort of facilitators of lifestyle change for our patients um, to really help them have the expectation that this is going to take a while and to coach them and give them the tools to really be able to make those changes because the food you eat is going to be the number one most important thing that drives your gut microbiome. And then the number two is something near and dear to your heart as well is stress right? Stress and trauma. And so, which is a huge lifestyle component as well and sleep and, you know, the way, you know, stressors in the, in your environment can come into your body and they really have direct effect on the gut microbes. It's via cortisol and, and the sort of um, hormonal or endocrine activation, but also directly through the sympathetic nervous system. You know, there's hard wiring throughout your intestinal lining that like, that's that when it's, um, when your sympathetic nervous system fires, it actually secretes neurotransmitters into your gut lumen and affects the changes in your gut microbes. I mean, it's like really fascinating stuff. And so we really have to help our people repair their gut. It's, it's a long relationship. It, this is not, and I don't want to just, you know, I don't want to get anybody, this is not forever, but it's longer than two months. You know, it's not, there's a quick fix, maybe a jump start. I like to think about it. But then there's this, you know, long-term six months or a year where you have to be really focused on maintaining, you know, adopting some sort of mind-body practice, being very mindful of where stress might be coming in and how to sort of create some resiliency, like building resiliency. I know you and I talk about, I love how you talk about that and not just Mm -hmm. about, you know, but flipping it and saying, let's focus on resiliency and not just about stress. And, you know, that's so, so important as well as food. And ultimately, that's how you're going to shift your inner ecosystem, you know, and how you are living in the world, you know, and that's going to be reflected in your gut. 
Susan, one of, the, one of the, yeah, I mean, it makes so much, one of the ways I try to frame it for my patients, and I could, like, I had a patient in the office recently, she's a young woman, she's been to many, 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 many doctors, and I, I think she was coming to me as sort of her last hope, that's sort of what she expressed, if I can't help her, she doesn't know what's going to, and, um, I told her that, you know, this isn't a quick fix, that there are things that are going to feel better quickly, but the really, this is not just about a fix. It's about rethinking a lifestyle, right? It's not just, this is not a diet. This is not a right. fix-it plan. This is a few months of pretty hardcore rearrangement. But ultimately, we want to, you know, find a lifestyle that doesn't feel restrictive, but at the same time isn't feeding the fires of your problem. Right. And I, I think when we all start to think about, we're, we're so fed by the medical model, you know, take this pill, you feel better. Take this diet, you lose 10 pounds. But if you look at most diets, people are back to where they were a year later because they've crept back to their old habits. So how can we think of this as a new way of living, a new way of stress management, a new way of eating that isn't just this short-term plan. I love that you, you really bring exactly. that way to, you know, not just, yeah, you have like a three-week plan, a six-month plan, but then you have this whole finish what you started, which really takes it out further. I think that that is so important. If we're going to get out of the medical model with our treatments, we have to get out of the medical thinking. And a lot of people don't know that they have to bridge that gap, right? Right. And I call it, I actually like, for speaking to other clinicians, I actually like to call it moving from a fixer model to a facilitator model, right? And that's a lot of what the Center for Mind-Body Medicine talks about probably and a lot that I learned through my work with that organization is really cultivating how to facilitate change in others or how, what my role is in helping to facilitate change in others. And we really have to put on a facilitator hat to help people understand how to you know, what comes next and how to make some changes that, that should be permanent, you know, and how they shift and how they, 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 how they are in their world. Before we run out of time, I want to make sure just to tell people sort of about food for a second, you know, and the most important way to choose choosing food. I like to, instead of calling yes. it a diet or, or a food plan, you know, or like any kind of diet, it's really about having some general guidelines for choosing food. And I think that, um, I mean, look, the studies looking at, the best way to eat to support a healthy gut microbiome are actually the same studies, the positive studies on eating to improve your arthritis symptoms. And, and actually some of the studies and, and, and the best, the best food plan is the Mediterranean diet, which I actually was so relieved to see because that's about balance and life and their populations in the world that eat that way. Right. And so, and that's exactly what I put in my book too. It's exactly, yes, and I so, agree. It's, to me and that's the sanity, yeah. right? Absolutely. And I mean, every study, I mean, and there's some good data, like David Katz did a book, uh, an article on, um, is there really a best way to eat? And, you know, a yes. healthy ancestral diet can get close to a Mediterranean diet, but all the really good studies that have done on reducing inflammation, you know, cutting the patterns of cognitive decline in Alzheimer's, reducing diabetes, reducing arthritis have all been a Mediterranean style diet. It's a Mediterranean style diet and, and, and for the gut and for arthritis, like vegan and vegetarian also were good, but the, but the Mediterranean is more widely studied and there's so much great data on that. And, and interestingly for in a study that was done on rheumatoid arthritis, they showed that the, these researchers showed that 
the changes in the gut that the food improved people's symptoms and it also changed the gut microbiome and it was and the changes in the gut were correlated with the changes in their symptoms and so when as food helps you feel better the question is that researchers are really looking at it is it via like what's the mechanism why does food make you help you feel better and at least part of the answer is because of how it improves your gut microbiome and so food affects your gut flora in two there's two main ways that food affects your gut flora one is the, what it's that the the bacteria sort of ferment the food you're eating, and so it could be so that's where the fiber comes in and the high fiber foods and the the and the bacteria take those foods and make these things called short chain fatty acids, which are great for our immune system. They help keep the gut barrier healthy, heal leaky gut. So the fiber aspect, the Mediterranean diet is very rich in fiber. All plant based diets are rich in fiber. The other thing that they're really rich in is this thing called polyphenols. And it's this category. I learned so much when I was writing this book and actually interviewing all my friends on the Arthritis Summit about food as well. And this thing, this group called polyphenols, they're kind of a, they're one of the, you know, they're a grouping of plant compounds that are not only antioxidant, but they come into the body and it's things like all the colors in the berries. And it's also in cacao and teas like green and black tea and cloves actually are really high in polyphenols, but legumes are and nuts are. And it's this compounds that actually go into the they they change the genetic expression of the bacteria in your gut, the good bacteria, so that they're healthier, right? So it's not about the they don't the bacteria don't eat it for food. They actually they're an environmental influence on the genome, so they have an epigenetic effect. And so, I mean, it's just. I, it's just I, I'm I'm a little bit of a geek when it comes to exciting sort of research information, <laughs> <laughs> but it but it just sort of tells you that there's all these nutrients that we're learning more and more about in a plant-based diet, right? And and a Mediterranean diet is plant-based. It's all about eating, you know, nuts and seeds and olive oil and and olive oil actually first cold pressed olive oil is very rich in these polyphenols, which are these antioxidants, and so. All of those good foods, they don't eat, there's not a lot of red meat in, in a Mediterranean diet. There's a little bit of dairy, fish, some chicken, but mostly it's a plant, it's a lot of plants and a lot of healthy fats. And what, what does not, and a Mediterranean diet does not have a lot of processed sugar and flour and processed, you know, foods. And so, and the quality of the oils are really good. It's all fresh food. And I think that that's a lot of what people have to understand is that when you're choosing food, you want to really be careful about quality. You want to know where the animals came from and what they were fed. You want to get rid of the sugar. You want to get rid of processed food dyes, all that stuff. And a clean, you know, whole foods Mediterranean diet does all that. The Mediterranean is sort of the long-term food plan. I do at the beginning with this whole jumpstart, you know, at the very beginning when you first start working, there's a therapeutic phase where we do do what's called an elimination diet. So to help you feel better very quickly and also to identify foods that might be triggering your pain, right? And um, we call them food sensitivities. So I do do, so, and the book takes you through that. And most of us all, all of us functional medicine docs or integrative docs, do recommend elimination diets of some sort where you take a whole list of foods and you remove them and then you reintroduce them one at a time to see if they trigger symptoms. And in arthritis, we usually remove sort of the classic gluten, dairy, soy, corn, eggs, sugar, but then we also remove the nightshade vegetables called, which are tomato, potato, eggplant, and peppers, which are 
sort of often trigger arthritis symptoms. And that's just for, you know, a month or two at the beginning when you're doing the first therapeutic phase. The Mediterranean diet is where I tend to move everyone to, you know, and that sort of becomes your da- your sort of foundation for your goal of where you want to end up. And you just, just need, and if you discover you have any foods that you're sensitive to, you do want to avoid those foods or, rest- or limit them in some way you know, as part of your Mediterranean diet. So I just wanted to clarify that, that I don't start out with a med just and say, eat all these foods. We do, you know, sort of do this elimination diet at the beginning to determine what foods somebody might be sensitive to and to see if we can help reduce inflammation really quickly with food. Yeah. I love it, Susan. I feel like um, our books are so similar in that we both look at the same core uh, or root cause triggers and then we both look at trauma, stress, and we, I think that when you look at a book, even like yours, and you can say, well, how can one plan address so many things like different kinds of arthritis, or how can my book address so many different symptoms? It's because we know that underlying are these same core triggers, but then maybe for osteoarthritis, there might be a specific set of supplements that might be especially helpful, or for adrenal, there might be a specific set. And I love that you take us down that root cause pathway and then make it very specific for people who are struggling with this very debilitating um, condition. So if there were three really specific lifestyle or food changes that you would suggest listeners make starting tomorrow, even before they get your book, that are safe for most people to do as take-home points, what would you say those three big things are? Well, you know, I like to think about positives first. So I, I would say to make sure that you're eating vegetables with every meal, that there's color in every meal, right? So it's what I want you to bring in. So you need to bring in all those different sort of polyphenols and phytonutrients, we call them, but it's really just all the color. So diversity, so for your gut, you need diversity of color, and different vegetables, and do not eat the same thing every day, right? So rotate and bring in all different vegetables. And so I guess that's the first thing. For arthritis, the kinds of fats that you're eating are really, are really, really important as well. And I, I would even say to start eating, you know, pay attention to the quality of your olive oil. Make sure you're choosing extra virgin first cold pressed um, olive oil. It's go- and, and have a lot of oil. Don't be afraid of fat. Okay, healthy fats are really good. So eat nuts and seeds, eat le- eat less red meat, and eat more nuts and seeds and olive oil. Right? That's what a Mediterranean diet, you know, does. And and so the quality, the quality, the quality of your fat. And let's see, a third thing to just do tomorrow for arthritis. Well, a, a probiotic. The studies are really, really good. There's actually excellent studies looking at people with arthritis just and taking a probiotic and that they reduced their symptoms, they reduced inflammation markers. Probiotics are actually immunomodulators. People think that taking a probiotic is like taking a seed that's going to grow inside them. It actually doesn't quite work that way. But what they do is they come in and they affect your, they lower inflammation levels and they help balance your immune system. And so, and they help, they help facilitate the improvement of the flora in your gut. So if there was a supplement to, well, you can do that with food as well. So I actually, actually, this is great. One of the things that I've done lately is I've, I've discovered fermented beets. I don't know if you've, there's this great company, it's called Hawthorne Valley and I'm no work for them, you know, nothing. I just discovered that. Oh yeah. But it's, <laughs> okay. So good. Do you know them? They're so mm-hmm. good. And mm-hmm. so, oh, yeah. So, 
So buy fermented food. This is how to improve your microbes. Increasing the the probiotics is the name is what we sometimes call the the supplement as a capsule, but you can do that with food by eating fermented vegetables. And so you can get fermented beets, and beets are really rich in polyphenols. So they, they they do double duty for so many things. They support detoxification and they're antioxidant. But if you get fermented ones, you can just have a, a little scoop of like a forkful of a fermented vegetable with with once a day with your meals, and that will that you can do that instead of taking a probiotic, and will help sort of stimulate and improve the um, your gut microbiome. So I think that would be a great uh, thing to do as well. I love it. I have fermented vegetables with my breakfast every day. And it's a nice way to get a vegetable in too that's already kind of prepared for you. So I love that. How do you do that? Wait, what do you have for breakfast? Now you have to tell. Well, so I have the luxury of a lot of days working from home. And those days, I don't intentionally intermittent fast, but those days I'll often have like a mid-morning breakfast and then a um, like a, a midday snack and then a dinner but uh, when I'm working and seeing patients or teaching, you know, anything that requires me to be out and putting a lot of external energy, then I do a, an early breakfast. But pretty much I have either some kind of sautéed vegetables and eggs or an omelet or frittata, something with eggs usually. Uh, mm -hmm. I may have some smoked salmon. Occasionally, very rarely, I'll make a smoothie, but uh, if I'm doing the eggs or doing uh, very, very occasionally, I will even have like an organic non-GMO uh, scrambled tofu with vegetables. But I always have either sauerkraut, kimchi, or we now have a crock and we make our own fermented vegetables. I used to do this when my kids were little. I used to make my own pickled vegetables and then I stopped and now I'm doing it again. So uh, we'll press cauliflower... Oh carrots, ginger, and just put it in a salt water bath for a few days and then rinse it off. It's so delicious. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Well, so there you go. So I think that improving the gut microbiome with fermented vegetables would be one thing definitely to do, to eat more vegetables in general, and then to really pay attention to the quality of your fats and eat a lot of good fat that's going to lower inflammation as well. So those would be my three things. Thank you. Susan, I know that writing a book is a labor of love. And even though we get paid a bit to, to write them, it's, it doesn't really um, kind of express or, or, or compensate in a way for the amount of bandwidth. And it can take a year of your life where you're really just focusing on that one thing. And yeah. so somebody has to really want to communicate information when they're already a busy doctor. <laughs> so I know that um, I know what it takes. And so I know how committed you were to getting this information out to so many people. And I want to thank you for that. And thank you so I much. I want to make sure my, oh, you are so welcome. And, you know, with you, one thing that I feel also really good about is that you have the knowledge, you have the training, you have the credentials, but you're also really seeing patients. And that's very different than people who are theoretically writing a book with something they've never done before. And that yeah. really translates into how you communicate the information to the reader. So that's also got added value. And you know the safety parameters, you know what people can really do, and you know you, you really know how to guide them. So I can't more highly recommend this book to listeners today. And, you know, you, you all who are listening know I'm super discriminating about that as well. So, Susan, please tell us how people can reach you and how they can best get your book. 
Okay, so the best way to get the book is to go to the website healingarthritisthebook.com and and you can definitely you could or you can go to Amazon and it's called Healing Arthritis is the book, but on my website you have I we have all these great bonus giveaways and extra great gifts that you get for buying the book via the website. So it's called healingarthritisthebook.com and you'll just see a lot of great videos and information about me and like I said, bonuses and giveaways. And so it just gives you some sort of added, just an added thank you from me, you know, for getting the book. Um, but you can go to your bookseller and get it anywhere you want. It's actually being released on October 24th, which is next, uh, on Tuesday next week. And it's awesome. Yeah, it's a very exciting. And so, yeah, you can get it from any of your booksellers it's called Healing Arthritis or healingarthritisthebook.com. And so, Aviva, you know, you're my girlfriend. Thank you so much. I, I love your work, too. I'm fully supportive of everything you do as well. And I appreciate you giving me a chance to come on and share my information with people, you know? I love it. I love your information, and I love your dedication, and I love your energy. So thank you, Susan, so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.